Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Our study of Nehemiah has been a lot of work for you and for me, but I've enjoyed it. I hope you benefited from it. This is our last session. It's going to cover about three hours, so you'll be late for lunch. Sorry about that. Just the way it is, I know you'll get up and walk out. So I'll try to hurry. Thank you for joining us online. Glad to have you in this class and all our visitors here, we're glad to have you. We're going to begin in the 15th verse of Nehemiah 13, the last part. It is big, so get ready. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit over the Bible. I don't like to do that, but that's the way it's going to be today. We thought when we started this book that when Nehemiah finished the walls, 52 days, that it's over. This this is it. This is a this is what we covered. But we found out that is not the case. He had defeated his enemies, it looked like, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, but he had not defeated them yet. Uh, it's like the situation with Balaam when he goes over to curse God's people and uh, God causes him to bless the people. And in the end, it looks like everything's a winner. Even Balaam is dead and the people have been blessed. You know what happened then? Satan was not finished. He was just getting started. The Israelite men fell into adultery, the kind of adultery I can't even describe here because this is a mixed audience, and God killed 24,000 of them. Point is, Satan never quits. He never quits. Satan wasn't finished with Israel when Nehemiah finished the walls. He was just beginning. A major thing happened after that. You know, the priest, the high priest, Elisha, gave Tobiah, the Ammonite, a room in the temple. He was not even supposed to be in the temple. Violated God's will for him to be in the temple. But he gave him a room in the women's court over in this corner right here where, guess what, the grain offerings were the frankincense, the new wine, all for the Levites and singers, gatekeepers, offerings for priests. These things supported God's worship and work. And I want to remind you of something that you already know. If we don't get worship right, we don't get anything right. If we don't get worship right, you can do all the benevolence you want to do. You can be as good as you want to be. If you don't get worship right, it is not right. We're God's people. We must do what he says. Now, the last half, half chapter, Nehemiah thirteen fifteen, major problems still remain. We're going to talk about them today as God activates and purifies the stump. If you haven't heard the previous lectures, you don't know what that means. But 300 years earlier, Isaiah had gone into the throne room of God 
And God sent him on a mission. He volunteered. But God sent him out and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to preach in such a way that will not convert these people. I don't want them to be converted. Converted them so many times. They repented and it hasn't worked. I want you to preach in such a way that they will not hear. And Isaiah says, God, I don't understand this. How long? How long? He said, until nations come and take them away. And he also described the fact that most of Israel would be gone, but there would remain a stump from which there would be a new sprout. And that would be his means of perpetuating the seed that he promised Eve, uh, that he promised Satan as tomorrow Eve in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of woman would bruise the head of Satan. That seed remained in this nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down. And finally, of course, in, uh, through Joseph as, a, as a, uh, an adopted father, so to speak, and then Mary, who was the direct descendant of these. And uh, that is Jesus Christ. So God activates and purifies this stump. And that's what he's working on here in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra of getting it ready to do its duty. So we start at verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 13. In those days, I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about that day, about the day on which they were selling provisions. What is wrong with this? Well, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And if you go back to Exodus 20, you'll find that that's the longest explanation needed for any of the commandments. Shall have no other gods before thee, might not make graven images, honor thy father and mother, etc., etc. This one is explained in a more intensive way than any of them. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I remember, and you remember also in the Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille, he made up a lot of stuff. And one of the things he made up was uh, Moses' mother, whom he called Yosebel, Yosebel, I believe, instead of Jochebed. But uh, part of her garment got caught under a huge stone that was being moved by hundreds of slaves. They were you didn't stop a stone like that because it was being moved, being moved for a pyramid and it was going to crush her. It wouldn't matter. She was just a woman, just an old woman in Israel. It didn't matter at all. And it would not slow the workers down because the stone was so heavy. They wouldn't even feel it when it crushed her. And Moses ordered that to be stopped. Where do you read that in the Bible? Well, it ain't there. That's Hollywood fairy tale. But Cecil B. DeMille had another fairy tale. One of his Egyptian people in that film said, these people are crazy. There's a particular day on which they will not work. Of course, referring to the Sabbath. That is not true. It's a fairy tale. They worked seven days a week. They didn't know about the Sabbath. The Sabbath day had not been given yet. The Ten Commandments had not been given yet. And regardless of what the Adventists may, the Seventh-day Adventists may say, or the Armstrongites, or the Seventh-day Baptists, or Seventh-day Church of God, the Sabbath day was given, was promised in the Garden of Eden, was not enforced until 31 days after Israel left Goshen. 
And she reached the Mount Sinai 47 days after she reached, after she left Goshen. But on the 31st day, God told them this, and I'm right now in Exodus 16, just two verses. You can turn there if you want to, but not necessary. Exodus 16, 26, beginning, uh, God gives the, uh, instructs these people that are going to Sinai about the Sabbath day. He says, six days shall you gather the manna, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day together, but they found none. Does it sound like they wouldn't work on the Sabbath day back in Goshen? No. They didn't know about the Sabbath day. God is getting them ready for the Sabbath day to be given. as the fourth commandment in just a few days on Mount Sinai. Wow. I've talked to many Sabbath keepers, so-called. There ain't none. Excuse my big cove terminology there. They always say, well, <clears throat> we, we don't keep the Sabbath fanatically. It's the fanatic Sabbath, Sabbath keepers you're talking about, and God never intended to be fanatic. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And I especially remember a young man in Jamaica. He's in his early 30s. I had a card to go see him, and I did. Oh, he was a he was a fancy young man. He had a new sports car sitting in his driveway. Now, if you've never been to Jamaica, you don't understand that. That a Jamaican would have said that's ganja money. By that, he meant marijuana. But I don't know that. But he was rich and single and strongly aligned with Seventh Day worship. We talked, and I said, well, couldn't do this on Sabbath day, couldn't do that. It's fanatic. He said, I don't keep the Sabbath fanatically. So let me ask you a question. Do you cook on the Sabbath day? Yes, I do. I'm hungry on the Sabbath day. What if you had to go out and gather sticks? He didn't know anything about the Bible. Gather sticks and make a fire on the Sabbath day to cook. He said, to eat, I would do it. I said, would you please turn over to Numbers fifteen thirty-two? And read that. He read that and his eyes got funny looking. Verse 35 says, you know, a man had done that. Picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. And Moses said, what are we going to do with him? And God said in verse 35, Numbers 15 verse 35. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall stone him with stones. You know what happened? Our Bible study evaporated. Couldn't get anything else out of him. Wouldn't talk to him anymore. Because he didn't keep the Sabbath like that. He didn't keep the Sabbath at all. And he didn't need to. But according to his philosophy, he did need to. Hmm. Nehemiah 3, 13, 16. You know, sometimes we just make up our religion. We grab something for one, one statement. Don't put it in its context, then get it all figured out. 
Friends, the Sabbath day lasted from the time God gave it on Mount Sinai. He had prepared them four chapters earlier for that, but it lasted until Jesus Christ died on the cross. It had no more effect after that. It was ended. That's just the whole point. Nehemiah 13, 16, the men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Israel in Jerusalem. I contended with the nobles of Judah. Now, Nehemiah was governor. The nobles of Judah were in politics, but they were also in religion. He said, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Evil thing? Buying stuff on Saturday was an evil thing? This is so minor. I want to tell you something else. It was also minor when Eve took the fruit from the tree and ate it. Just a little thing, was it not? It was minor when Nadab and Rahu offered the wrong kind of fire. Who can be that fanatical to say this fire is wrong? A fire is fire. It's a little thing. What do you mean we sing a cappella in worship? Doesn't matter. It's a little thing. No, it corrupts our worship to do otherwise. That's just one thing I want to mention. We need to do what God said. When Eve looked at that fruit and it appealed to her, she was already in sin. She didn't have to touch it. She couldn't even look at it and desire it. But she touched it, deepened her sin. She ate of it, deepened her sin, and gave it to Adam. Well, I might as well. Eve did it, so I'll get in there with her. God curse you, Adam. Why did you do such a thing? So disappointed. And then this little thing, this evil thing that he called is such a little thing. He goes on in verse 18 to say, did your fathers do this? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? That was in 586 BC. He destroyed them because of the little things they were doing wrong. Yet you bring added wrath to Israel on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Profaning the Sabbath brought added wrath. You've got all the idolatry. You've got everything you want to mention. Now you profane the Sabbath. You just strengthen Satan's position. Verse 19, so it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath. Then I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. It's a shame you have to do that to God's people, isn't it? The idea was enough. Why didn't they just refrain? They wouldn't do that. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. He couldn't just make an announcement, couldn't put posters on light poles there and say this is what it's going to be. He had to take action to prevent it. Verse 20, now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They kept on trying. Satan does not give up. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Our old men out in the West, the old sheriff out there will say, I will put you in the hooskow. 
and worse. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Isn't it amazing that God's people have to be forced to do what's right? But Nehemiah was saying, I'm going to do it if I have to. Verse 22, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they, being holy men then, should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And then he appeals to God, remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Now look at verse 23. We have a new idea here. In those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They were probably the border people. The Ashdodites had been corrupted by now. They were not pure Ashdods, but they were still part of the Philistine clan. They could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of other people. Now, there's a bigger problem here than we'd see. I've had the privilege, if I can call it a privilege, of visiting homes where the parents and the children spoke different languages. It's the truth. I remember in Holland that some of the parents from Africa could not speak English. And the children learned English at school. And the children come home communicating with each other in English. And the parents didn't know what they were saying. Most of them didn't have a rule. You got to speak where I can understand you. When I was teaching at the university in Kiev, Ukraine, I never will forget another math teacher said, Mr. Andrews, I had a problem today. He said, I was given a test. There were two girls down on the front seat. They were talking to each other in Russian. I, I tried to listen. I didn't know what they were saying. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm helping her with this problem. I said, this is a test. And then he made a rule. Anything you say in here has to be said in English. Of course, the rule didn't always work. That was the school rule, by the way. It's the only reason I could teach there. I sure didn't know Russian. But all of my kids spoke in Russian, except when they got ready to share some secret, and then I don't know what they were saying. But I feel sorry for parents who can't understand what their children are saying, and the children love it. Does not make good for a family. So here are the families who have married the Ashdodites, the men, and they don't understand the children because the children are speaking in a language they don't understand. Wow, what a mess. Verse 35, 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck them and pulled out their hair. That's pretty fierce, you know. That's worse than going in the hooskow. And made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to your, their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. That was God's law anyway. They were not to do that. And then he argues, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we not hear all all of your doing? Should we then hear all of your doing? All this evil, trespassing, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women. They had not learned 
You remember Daniel on that last night of the Babylonian Empire when he's in the room with Belshazzar, the king, and there's handwriting on the wall. He has to tell the king what it's about and what it means, and I cannot imagine how he must have felt, but he said, listen, Belshazzar, you did not hear what happened to your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, you might have heard it, but you didn't understand it. He went out and grazed like a beast in the field because he didn't accept God. And here you've made the same mistake that he made because you didn't learn the lesson. I want to look at 1 Kings 11 just a minute. And verses 1 through 8, might not read all that, but I want to read part of it. It's about King Solomon. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. It's plain enough. I'm sure that if some of our people in this society had lived back then, they would have made a way to do that. Well, Solomon did, but he was smart and powerful, so he just did it. He didn't try to defend it. He just did it. And it was a good political thing. I mean, you're married to the daughter of Pharaoh. (laughs) You think Egypt's going to come and attack you? No, they're going to make an alliance with you. You're married to the daughter of the Moabite uh, uh, king, you think Moabite and Moab's going to, no, no. Solomon did what was right politically. Uh, just for the, you probably know, know this about me, but I am politically incorrect. I don't care who knows it. When I got ready to talk about homosexuality, I talk about it. I don't hate a homosexual person. I love homosexual people. I hate homosexuality. When I get ready to talk about abortion, I talk about it. Oh, it's not popular. I talk because it's a sin. And you ladies that have had abortions, you are forgiven or can be forgiven. Have no problem with that. But abortion is a sin. Why did God say, not to marry because they will turn your hearts away from their God, away, turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princes, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. That's a significant, I want to pause here at verse three. That's a significant statement because we don't understand it. What is a concubine? Well, it's something like a prostitute. We say it is not prostitute is a wife. It's a legal wife. Now, this is is in the days of polygamy. Why does it say he has 700 wives and 300 concubines? Why not a thousand wives? Because there were different kinds of wives. The wives were princesses. A man of royalty should marry only a woman of royalty. If he married another woman, she was a concubine. She could not be a wife in that sense because there was a political difference. That's the difference in the concubine and the wife. And all of the, all 1,000 of them were legal. But his wives turned their heart after other gods. 
Why not his concubines? Because he did not have to please his concubines. If he had a concubine who was a pagan of a different color, he didn't have to build her a temple. Her daddy was not jumping on him because her daddy had no credibility. These princesses had daddies that could sort of boss Solomon around a little bit. He was their son-in-law. And they did what they wanted to do. So his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was his father David. For Solomon went after Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord, as did his father David. He built a high place for Chemosh, abomination of Moab, and on the hill east of Jerusalem, that's uh, Mount Olivet, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. We talk about Solomon's temple. He had many temples. Now, they were not as elaborate as the one we talk about. They were uh, buildings with high places, an upstairs place where the God of that particular temple could be served and worshiped by the high priest of that cult. Solomon built those temples for his wife. He even built a temple in the Valley of Hinnom, Molech's high place where babies were burned in Jerusalem's garbage dump as they passed through Molech. They passed through the fire. This is far, far beyond our comprehension. But Solomon did that. He did it because of the power of his wives and their families. Over in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, beginning, But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, Moses is preaching. They're going into the promised land you shall not let you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive but you shall utterly destroy them the Hittite the Ammonite the Canaanite the Perizzite the Hivite the Jebusite just as the Lord your God commanded you lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God who shall die well all the men of those areas all the men of those nations, all the women of those nations, all the children of those nations. Don't let anything remain. That sounds like genocide. And that's not right. I don't need to defend my God. I just say God is right. But he had a real reason for this. That property belonged to his people. And he knew what it would do if one person were left alive there. And he said, get rid of God, said, get rid of them. It doesn't fit too well in our culture. But we're not subject to our culture when we think about what God did. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? God is in charge. And when he says, kill these people, man, woman, and child, do it. 
They didn't do that. Why did God do that? Because he was protecting his seed. The seed that he promised was in Eve. He pulled his people out, not for their own salvation, because some of these Jewish people were as wicked as people could be. But that nation was protecting his seed. And he finally got down to the point where he had to narrow the nation down to a stump and start over again. And they still didn't get it right, but he protected them for his seed. The book of Romans leads some to believe that all Israel is going to be saved. That is not the case. The part of Israel that will be saved is the part that obeys the gospel. Rest I will be lost. Israel was not a saved nation. It was a nation that brought God's will to pass by keeping the seed. That's just, it was a utilitarian nation. We need to understand that. Then we'd understand the book of Romans better. Back in Ezra chapter 10. Now, while Ezra was praying, I think I finished with that over here. Yeah, let's see. Let me, uh, let me, uh, now I won't go back there. Ezra 10. Now, while Ezra was praying, this is before Nehemiah's book, just a few years, but it might even have been before Nehemiah came, or at least he was there before Nehemiah came. While Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him for, from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, well, Demar, there's your name. What about that? I didn't know Demar had another name. Spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God, have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Why? Because we're going to correct it. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God. I want to stop here just a minute. Not we're going to make an agreement with our God. We're going to sign a contract with our God. We're going to make a covenant. This is the strongest word that can be had because when you have a covenant with somebody, you become that person and that person becomes you. The word covenant in the Old Testament means to cut. And it's to cut so that you can be joined together in a very special way. Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all the Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word. So they swore an oath. Ouch. I want to stop here and talk about the old law and the new law. You just heard the old law. Somebody reading this says, well, I'm kind of nervous because my husband's not a Christian. My wife's not a Christian. I, in fact, I have a, a wife who is a pagan. She is of a, some Eastern religion. I have a husband who's an atheist. I, I, I don't know. Is this telling me that I can't live with that person? It is not. Look at 1 Corinthians 7. 
We're going to dwell on this just a minute and uh, see if we can wade through this. This is not easy. Now, Paul has been talking, and then he says, The rest uh, say, I am not the Lord. And he is not saying what I'm saying is not inspired, but he's rather saying that uh, he has the Holy Spirit telling him what to do, but Jesus Christ did not comment on this. He says, this is new stuff. He says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So a pagan and a Christian can live together as husband and wife. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let him not divorce him. Let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving wife, I was in a Bible study some years ago over in another state. And an elder was teaching the class and he was on this. I said, boy, I'm going to learn what verse 14 means. I never will forget that. And uh, when he got to verse 14, he exercised the Passover. He didn't even read it. I'm going to read it. I want to tell you what it means. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So you have a Christian woman, a pagan husband, children, and all of them are holy. They are. All of them are saved. No, 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 no. It's not that at all. God sanctifies that family. He sets that family apart for special things. He sees that godly woman and he protects her husband and children. A family that has no Christians in it does not have that kind of protection. This is a different kind of protection. I loved what Brother Glenn said today on providential care. The difference between providence and miraculous things. And then I loved where you stopped time and got the Red Sea divided. What a picture. God just stopped nature. He stopped nature. And that's what no TV evangelist can ever do. One of the TV evangelists years ago was having a healing campaign. And a storm blew his tent down. It was a huge tent. And ambulances lined up to take wounded people to the hospital. How sad. Why were they injured at all? And why couldn't they be fixed? Because the miraculous days had ended. But when God stopped nature and opened the Red Sea, two to three million people passed through on dry ground. Why, ouch. So this family is protected by God because one person is a Christian in the family. Thank God for that. I know a family, by the way, whose the husband is not a member of the church. He never has been and never has been religious at all. He, he, uh, his wife is a devout Christian. And he told me not so long ago, when we married, I told her that the children and their spirituality was left up to her. She should raise them in her faith. I thought that's sad for a person to say that, but that's what a woman has to do. She has to take charge of that. If she's a Christian, he's not. To the very best of her ability, she has to do that. 
Okay, let's go on to the last verse here. You hurried today. I can't believe this. One of the sons of Joida, the son of Elisha, the high priest, was a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Thank you for doing that, Nehemiah. Remember then, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring in the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed time. Remember me, O oh God, for good. He keeps reminding God that he wants to be remembered. And thank you for that, Nehemiah, because we remind God of the same thing. I often start my prayers by saying, God, I'm your servant. Use me, and then I tell him what I need besides that. Well, that was a real, real fast run by. And uh, the point is, when we commit sin, as these people had done, by first of all, not killing the people who were in Canaan, and secondly, by taking them as wives or husbands, great consequences are to pay. Do I grieve because of that? Yes, I do. Did they grieve? Yes, they did. But God's way is God's way, and I don't know how to fix it. I remember one time, a few years back, (laughs) several years back, a man aged 35 came into my office. I'd never seen him before. And he said, he told me the woman who was his girlfriend. I knew she came from a good family, strong family in my city, Her brother was a gospel preacher, well-known in the church. If I called his name, half of you would stand up and say, I know him. I didn't know her, but he said, if she told me if I would come to see you and you would tell her that we could get married, then she would marry me. And I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, the truth is I've been married three times. I, I didn't like the woman I first married, so I got rid of her. And then I committed adultery and I married another woman. That didn't work out. Married another woman, and then she didn't do right, and I put her away. But this one's going to count, preacher. This one's going to count. This is four, and I can do it. I know I can do it. I've learned so much. Just tell me, tell her that she can marry me. I said, I can't do it. You you what? I said, I don't have the authority. He said, you're a preacher, aren't you? I said, of course I am, but I don't have the authority. God has spoken Well, he said, you can tell me different. I said, I could, but I'm not going to. I don't have the authority. What I say has no authority. I read in verse 19, and he he got down on his knees by my desk and cried. He said, this is 30 minutes later. He said, you're not going to tell her she can marry me. I said, I'm not, because I cannot. How sad. Will you bow with me? Father, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the good lessons it offers. Thank you for the warnings we saw in it. And help us to incorporate those things in our lives and walk in the light as you'd have us walk. Thank you for our class, every member of it. And bless this class as it continues with our brother next week, Brother Eads, as he teaches another great course. Forgive us our sins, help us to walk in the light, protect us as we walk out of here. 
from the fiery darts of Satan. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.